It's the ACDC Beyond the Thunder podcast with your host, Kurt Squires, with Greg Ferguson and Eric Deal. For those about to talk, we salute you. Good day to you ACDC fans and welcome to ACDC Beyond the Thunder, a podcast that revolves around famous fans who've been influenced or involved in truly unique ways by this extraordinary band. I'm your way too invested host, Kurt Squires, here with my eclectic and electric crew, Mr. Eric Kielb, who's sitting at the soundboard to my left here and making everything sound so good, and the mighty, mighty Greg Ferguson, who's here to keep us honest and right on track. Greg how are you feeling about this particular episode? This is our season finale, man. Well, I'm always excited to carve out time for Beyond the Thunder. And today, we are headed all the way to the UK to go behind the camera with Jim Parsons, who some of you may not be familiar with, but he has this tremendous connection to ACDC and really the entire music world. No kidding. I mean, believe it or not, Greg, our first correspondence with this next guest was back in the fall of 2009. After Howard Johnson, who's the author of this terrific little book called Get Your Jumbo Jet Out of My Airport. Yeah. Paul Elliott, author of several amazing ACDC books, they both reached out after meeting at the Classic Rock Awards in London. They saw our trailer, which they played that night in front of all these famous rock stars, which was amazing. And Howard said, you have to talk with Jim Parsons. He's an old friend of mine. He's very well known in the industry truly respected music video producer and ACDC fanatic. That's right. And ever since then, Jim's not only been a huge cheerleader for our project, but he's been instrumental in keeping the fires burning along the way. He's got amazing contacts. Uh, he's given us great tips along the way and suggestions yes. and even offered to assist us with our documentary over the years. Yeah. And this is a snapshot of his life for you. Whenever we reach out to Jim, he'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, guys. I, I, I haven't been in touch. I was busy filming Genesis this weekend or like yep. Muse or I'm with Sam Smith at Abbey Road Studios right now. I'll get right back to you though. He's like, just another day for oh, Jim. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's like, oh, I'm just filming with FIFA, you know, the World Cup in, in Qatar right now. Uh, can I get back to you tomorrow? Like I, I want this guy's life. He's all over the place doing these great projects all the time. And it's always fun to, to touch base with Jim and see what he's up to. But you guys might be scratching your head thinking, you know, what's the connection to ACDC? Well, Jim is responsible for producing one of the most coveted ACDC performances of all time, the fan favorite VH1 Uncut Show with ACDC. And if you haven't seen this special, immediately after this episode, of course, you got to go watch it. It's amazing. And Jim did a great job setting that whole thing up. And you're going to hear his whole story coming up. So, Kurt, I would say, you know, let's flick the switch right now and get rolling with this unsung guest. All right, let's do this. Today, ACDC Beyond the Thunder welcomes a rock and roll storyteller with a career spanning 30-plus years as a producer, director, writer, executive producer, overseeing numerous concert films, live events, documentaries, and award shows, working with everyone from, get this, listeners, Metallica, Paul McCartney, Coldplay, U2, Foo Fighters, Chili Peppers, The Rolling Stones, and did we mention a Grammy award-winning producer 
for Led Zeppelin's Celebration Day concert film. Although he does have a degree from Manchester in biochemistry, this is not the guy from the Big Bang Theory, everyone. It's the other Jim Parsons, who is certainly a much, much bigger ACDC fan and plays a much more important role in the band's history than Sheldon Cooper could have ever fathomed, including bringing to life the fan-favorite ACDC television performance on VH1's Uncut. Ladies and gentlemen, ACDC Beyond the Thunder welcomes the man behind the camera, Jim Parsons. Jim, how's it going? I'm, I'm very well. I'm humbled by you. I was thinking, who's this guy? I can't wait to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, so nice to have you on the show. Greg and I were saying how you're always working on the biggest projects in rock, and you're so nonchalant about it. In fact, when we were trying to schedule this interview, you apologetically said, oh, sorry, guys, I'm working on the Taylor Hawkins tribute show right now in London, but maybe I can squeeze it in right before the show. <laughs> we're like, what? <laughs> so what was your role in that particular gig? Um, I was broadcast producer on that gig. I guess kind of, I mean, I always say it wasn't as glamorous as perhaps you might think, but um, it basically meant I had to look after the satellite trucks and make sure that it got, it got from Wembley Stadium to the world. But it was... Um, it was an interesting show. I'll be honest, I'm not the biggest Foo Fighters fan yeah. in the world. I do love them. I love Dave Grohl. I love Taylor. They were love, they're lovely, lovely people, but I'm not a huge fan of their music. But it felt like a three-in-one show, because it felt, or a four-in-one, actually, because it felt like there was a bit of a tribute to David Bowie, a bit of a tribute to Eddie Van Halen, a bit of a tribute to Neil Peart, and obviously to Taylor. So it was kind of, it was surreal. I mean, just seeing those rush... And Brian Johnson and Lars Ulrich and all these sort of people in one place. It is you do your fifteen year old self goes. <gasps> yeah, dude, yeah. Wow. And Olivia Newton John, of course, on the drum kit. Yes, she was there as well. well she wasn't there, but I, yes, I forgot. Sorry, I mean yes, I, yeah, yes. And speaking of Taylor Hawkins, what a fantastic show putting that together. I mean, I felt like I was. I was talking to uh, these guys that it felt like I was watching Live Aid again. It was so well done. So kudos to you guys. Well, there was, I say, I was a ton, and on that one, genuinely was a tiny, tiny cog in it. And, and JC and the, the band's management and the guys that lit it and produced it, uh, Ema Patton was the, the main producer. I worked, with, I worked with her on the Metallica show. Um, yeah, I mean, it's nice because it was part of, the, it's the Foos family. And I did a, a show with the Foos a few years ago at the Cheese and Grain. I don't know if you remember, they, they yeah. did a tiny little webcast from from Froome in Somerset, which is near, near Glastonbury. And I directed that. Oh, fine. So it, it's that kind of thing where when this happens, they go, you're part of the family. And Ema, Ema's worked with them a lot. And she did, the, she did the Wembley show that Jimmy Page played at, which I didn't work on, actually. Um so it's it's nice. I mean, it's kind of it's like a family operation, although obviously quite a successful family. Well, let's talk about the Brian Johnson episode of that show, taking the stage with Lars alongside the Foos, which was a wonderful treat for ACDC fans. Uh, do you have any tasty little stories from that rare collaboration, or were you far away from that at the point at that point? Well, I was. I watched the rehearsals, and they couldn't decide what they were going to do. And they were going to do Back in Black. Then they were going to do You Shoot Me All Night Long. Then they thought they might do two songs and and, and the th three songs or four. And and the the running order of that show was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And yeah. they were trying to keep it on track and trying to keep it on time. Um, so there was a big discussion about. But Lars will just do another song, won't he? And I was like, well, probably. But in the end, they just did what they did. They did Back in Black and Let There Be Rock. 
And they're wrong. Um, but the, the big story there was that people um, got very upset with Justin Hawkins for taking the <laughs> mic off um, Brian. That was quite awkward, yes. But from what I understand, just before the song started, Brian said to Justin, you're singing the second verse. Yes. And Justin went, I don't think I am. And Dave Grohl went, if Brian says you are, then you are. Right. So he went on. <laughs> and when he went on, he didn't have a microphone. No. So he suddenly realised that he had to use Brian's. Right. I, I, I mean, I didn't think it was awkward at all, but a lot of people were very, he disrespected Brian. I think he, I don't think he did. No, and I, I heard that Justin had explained that. He also admitted that he didn't really know the words, which would made it even a little bit more awkward. But, you know, it was all for a good cause. So how are you going to... Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. And, but I didn't, I didn't actually get, because I was in the trucks and stuff, I didn't really get to see anybody on that. I didn't say hello to anybody beyond... One brief encounter with Mr. Grohl. Oh, nice. But other than that, you know, I didn't see Brian or Lars because, again, they, they sort of, it's that strange thing. And, I, and you always say I'm very blase about stuff, but it's that strange thing where they sort of know who you are. Yeah. Because, especially because of my haircut, people <laughs> recognize me. But they don't really know who you are because they don't see you often enough. So they don't want to be rude and go, who are you? So they just go, dude. That's and awesome. You, then to make it not awkward, you just go, dude, back. And that's fine. <laughs> so we have to why don't we start at the beginning when did you know that this is what you wanted to do as a career god that's a good question i knew the life-changing moment for me i was about 11 well i was 11 and my brother went i went to boarding school which is posh in england and my brother came home from his first term at boarding school i was at a different a big school i was at little school still with an album called 24 Carat Purple, which was a deep purple compilation. I don't know if you had it in the States, but it was basically gold and it said 24 Carat Purple. And the first track on it was Woman from Tokyo. And the moment I heard that, I went... And I, at that point, I was into the kind of bands that were big in England, which was Slade and Sweet and, the, I dare I say, it, the Bay City Rollers. But hearing Richie Blackmore, that was the bit I went, that's amazing. Yes. I don't know what that is. And that, that was the moment that changed my life. And I bought Machine Head and then was obsessed with them. But I don't really, I, I wanted to be involved in it, but I didn't know how to. Right. So I guess I did all the usual things of buying all the records, going to all the gigs, being obsessed with all these bands. And then I got to university and I was just, I went to university because I probably was too wet behind the ears and too, I don't know, just too middle class and polite to actually say, I don't want to do a grown up job. Right. I did, I did university because it was expected of me. Finished university and then went, right, I want to do something with rock and roll. And I, I just kind of floated around for a few years trying to be in bands and failing dismally. And then by chance, I went to see a gig at the Marquee Club in London. And I can't remember who the gig was. I think it might have been a band called Skyclad, but I could be wrong. And I met Vanessa Warwick, who was the presenter of Headbangers Ball MTV in London, yep. the European equivalent of Ricky Rackman. Right. And we had a conversation. She was interviewing Lemmy the next day, and she said, oh, what would you ask him? And I gave her some questions, and we had an argument about Brian Robertson. And I was saying, yeah, he was the same Brian Robertson that was in Thin Lizzie. And she was like, don't be silly. And I'm like, no, he was, he was. And she, anyway, we didn't fall out. But a couple of, I said, check, and you'll find out I'm right. A couple of days later, she um, she called me and said, you were right about Brian Robertson. And I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then she was like, "Oh, would you, you know, do, would you, be, you know, would you be interested in researching and helping, you know, with what I do on on Headbangers Ball because it's it was just made by her. The program was made by her. No wow. At that point, there was no budget. It was tiny. I mean, MTV back then was so 
I, get, I started helping her out. And that's kind of where I got a break. And then eventually MTV gave me a job just because I hung around so much, really. They were like, do you don't even work here? What are you doing? And actually, bizarrely, the point I met the head of production, Brent, at MTV properly, he, um, I went to Germany to do an interview with a band called Gamma Ray. Okay. Who were yep. new at the time. And it was one of the... Kai Hansen was a guitarist in Halloween. He'd left, started his own band. And Vanessa said, will you go to Germany and do an interview with them? And I was like, sure. So I went to Germany, did the interview, and came back and... The boss at MTV went, you can't go to Germany and interview people. You don't even work here. Wow. And I was like, yeah. And he went, and I was a bit, I thought, that's it. I'm, I'm, they're going to kick me out. And he, he was, <laughs> I said, well, what would you have done? And he went, well, I'd have gone as well. So we better find you a job. So they sort of eventually <laughs> found a way of employing me. Wow. When was the first time that you heard ACDC? It doesn't sound like it was one of those bands that, was a life-changing band when you first got into music, was it? Well, it was, and it was probably, they were probably the second or third band that I was utterly obsessed with. So after a bit of Deep Purple, I, my brother bought Highway to Hell. And again, I was 11 or 12, I guess it would have been. And I remember he came home with the cover, and I remember just looking at the cover and thinking, he looks, Angus, he looks, which is bizarre now, go, it, it looked really scary. Right. I was like, yeah. I was like, they're scary people. And then the, he put the record on, and I was like, they sound like Satan. <laughs> they sound really scary. This is for you. And I, was, and I was sort of, I was fascinated and quite disturbed by it. I didn't yeah. like Deep Purple. I loved from the first second. I thought they were great. ACDC. I was like, this is he can't really sing in tune. It's not like Ian Gillan. And they sat there singing about hell and the devil, and it was just all really a bit scary. And then after a bit, you suddenly go. But it is probably the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and then I bought, and then I straight, I bought "If You Want Blood," and I probably listened to that yeah. exclusively for I don't know a year. It's all I ever listened to that album over and over again. Wow, the second scariest album cover. Yeah, I think that's probably why I bought it. <laughs> but by then, it wasn't scary. <laughs> I, I, I do still look at "Highway to Hell," and look, it makes me laugh because I look at it and go, "I thought Angus was scary," and obviously now you've yeah. yeah. met him or. And you know what he's like. He's right. the least scary satanic man in the world, isn't he? Right. And you, you think he's on drugs, but, you know, he's a teetotaler and uh, yeah. pretty much the most harmless guy in rock and roll. Yeah. Just, I mean, but they, as a band, they just weren't scary. But I don't know about that cover. They do look like badass people, don't they? They do. Malcolm as well. Malcolm looks absolutely evil. <laughs> they, they look unkempt. I know that. They were like street thugs when I saw that they album look, cover. They just look scary. I don't. Okay. Yeah. So I really did get, I was absolutely obsessed with ACDC, Deep Purple and Motorhead. In, probably from the age of 11 or 12 till, and then as I got a bit older, I got into all the rest of it, you know, the, the more uh, extreme stuff. But those three bands were the first three that that I really, you know, that's what I had on the back of my denim jacket. It was ACDC, Motorhead and uh, Deep Purple. Well, I, I definitely want to jump into this next part, which is your, your time at VH1 slash MTV. And you've certainly come a long way since your MTV days. Since that time, you've shot everywhere from Madrid to Monaco to Moscow. You've amassed somewhere north of 175 unique projects, either producing or directing some of the biggest bands on the planet. And just for the folks at home, can you briefly describe what a producer is responsible for and what a director is responsible for? Because both Greg and I have been doing this task for years, but we wear so many hats and we don't even know where one begins and one ends anymore. So maybe it's best served up by you. 
That's a good question, because I guess, I mean, and it's 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 a fact of, of the way the world's changes that now people do many things. When I started at MTV, people produced or directed or they were an editor. You didn't really do more than one thing at a time, mm-hmm. which is probably the right thing. But as a producer, your job is to manage the whole project. So effectively, you deal with the budget, how much things cost, who's doing what, who's going where. And your job is to manage the budget and manage the creative. But effectively, with, with kind of concert shoots, it's, it's to give the director whatever it is they want, which I hate saying because directors <laughs> always want more than they can have. Yeah, be, be careful. <laughs> so the classic thing is you do a budget for the record company or the management and you'll go, it's going to cost half a million dollars. And you do a budget based on, say, 20 cameras. And then, of course, the director comes in and goes, I need 25 yeah <laughs> and you're like well we budgeted for 20 and he goes all right i could probably manage to get i could probably make it work for 23 and you end up at 22 but so but effectively as a producer you 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 look after them the financial side of it and the creative side of it and you deliver it really it's it's all encompassing yeah I, I, and as a director i mean I, I have i do the weird thing is i don't think i've ever directed with a producer i've always produced myself which is slightly disappointing because it means you have to do twice as much work right and do you edit as well? No. I mean, like I edit, I edit like really rudimentary in terms of just like chopping bits out that I do and don't like, but not not in an ed, not in a creative sense, no. Okay. But as a director, you know, your job is to find out what the band want and make sure that you deliver a film that fits with their vision, I suppose. Yeah. Um it, it it's different because as I say, and stop me if I'm waffling, because when I started you just turned up and went, hi, we're here to film. And bands would be like, amazing. What do you want to do? And you could just do it. And then you send them the film and they go, amazing, thank you. And now you have to justify everything you do because everyone's got a visual vocabulary because everyone's got an iPhone, so everyone makes their own film. So in a really strange way, when I first started doing it and I had no idea what I was doing, I was left to do it completely. And now I do know what I'm doing. I get told what to do. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Well, it's strangely. Oh, uh, I, I hope you don't mind going deep on this next topic because this particular moment in your career goes back to your very early days. You're talking about at MTV slash VH1, but it's one of my favorite moments in ACDC's career. And you were so instrumental in making this happen. Tell us how you ended up getting ACDC on TV back in 1996 on VH1. And it was a program called Uncut, I believe. Something that hadn't happened since the 70s with these guys. And I think it was Brian Johnson's first live TV appearance ever. I think it, I think it might have been his first live TV appearance. I mean, I must at this point, for the listeners, that there's a big caveat on this. And there's, there's one of the, well, not one of the persons, a whole team of people. But the, but the person that was most instrumental in making it happen was my boss, Mike Kaufman, who was the... Uh, head of production at, at VH1. And I'd worked with him at MTV prior to that. He used to do MTV News, and I used to do Headbangers Ball. And whenever there was an, a news stroke, whenever there was big rock stuff, he he and I would do stuff together. So we'd done stuff with ACDC at Monsters of Rock, but it was always just interviews and press junkets and you know trying to get a soundbite from them. So so we'd done that stuff with them, and 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 it would have been was it the ball breaker? T- I should know this, you know, yeah. it was the ball breaker. Yeah, tour, it was. It? So they, they, they'd done the ball breaker tour or they were doing the ball breaker tour and they, they played in the UK and we'd been to see them. And then Mike was very good friends with their guitar tech and said, do you think they'd do something on VH1? At which point he said, well, I'll ask Malcolm. And then it's a really weird thing. The next day we're in the office and Mike goes to him, come in, and there's a fax 
tweets from Malcolm. He, he faxed us saying, we're, gonna, we're up for doing a performance of VH1. This is the date we can do it on. This is what we need. And it was just a list of, ring this bloke, ring this bloke at Marshall, ring this bloke at Sonar Drums, we'll fly in, we'll do the performance and we'll fly out. Wow. And there was a bit of, I probably shouldn't say it, a bit of jiggery-pokery about dates, I think to do with visas, because they were in Lisbon and they, they had a two days off between shows in Europe. Yeah. So they flew back in secretly without telling anybody. I couldn't tell anybody. So all my friends who love ACDC have wow. never quite forgiven me going, you didn't even invite me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's amazing. I can't believe that. So a fax from Malcolm Young. How 90s? Which which I don't have. I have to be honest. Oh, you, know, you don't things... have it? I was going to ask you, where is that oh, thing? Is it framed somewhere? It's one of my regrets. Is like, I, I, didn't, I don't keep things. I didn't keep stuff. Like All the stuff I had on Headbangers Ball, I got sent so much stuff. Wow. But now you look back on so much exclusive stuff. Yeah. And I just gave it away or you know, lost it. So I didn't keep that fact. Mike might have it. But the studio at VH1 is the most remarkable thing of that thing because it's it's tiny. It's probably, I mean, I'm sitting in my dining room and it's what? Oh, you work in feet, don't you? It's probably 20 feet by 12 feet. Very good. But the studio at, v, the studio at VH1, if you look at the shots of it, the yeah. width of it was, they, they touched the walls. Yeah. And it was a square. So it's probably 25 foot by 25 foot, that studio. Amazing. So there was literally the band area and then there was three cameras, three cameras on on what we call peds, which are the like a big tripod that rolls about. There's three cameras like that and a couple of handheld cameras, and that was it. There was no one else in there apart from um, production stuff. It wow. was tiny. So how did you prepare for that, did, like equipment-wise and uh, just catering to what ACDC required? <laughs> the, the, the funny thing is, from that point of view, it was really easy. Literally, that fax from Malcolm said, call this man at Marshall. He'll send you the amplifiers you need. Call this man at Sona. He'll send a drum kit. <laughs> so we did. I can't remember what the bass rig was, but I suspect it was an Ampeg. So I suspect we just hired it from John Henry's. So, I mean, their kit's not that difficult. And then they just said, we're coming in. We'll bring a monitor engineer. They must have brought a guitar tech or two, and that was it. I mean, it was so low rent. They turned up. There was no rider. That, I mean, MTV, there was a, an atrium in the middle of the building and this tiny little green room, which was almost like a goldfish bowl. They sat in there. All they said was, we just need lots of cups of tea and we smoke a lot of cigarettes. And I remember the, the studio manager going, well, they can't smoke in the studio. And I'm like, Jason, they're going to smoke in the studio. And you're going to turn a blind eye or we're going to tie you up and hide you in the cupboard. Yeah. And we did it We did it kind of so they, they turned up. I guess we prepped the studio about six o'clock in the evening they turned up about seven thirty-eight, and we went till about 11 so kind of everyone left we didn't tell anyone so everyone left and went home and they just played wow uh, i mean somewhere i have got a vhs somewhere of the whole rehearsal everything yeah i've seen it you know why because someone leaked that puppy the, of the rehearsal yes yes it's like over really? an hour of footage of rehearsals uh so you can like delve into wow. Angus and Malcolm and Phil and Cliff looking at each other, trying to learn riffraff again. Because well, it wasn't, it wasn't just riffraff. The songs that I, because my assistant at, at VH1 at the time, who still works at MTV now, in fact, she's doing the MTV Awards quite soon with Chloe Mason. Oh. And her father is Nick Mason. And oh, wow. No yeah. kidding. 
But she was my assistant that then. And I, again, I think we either got a phone call or another fax from Malcolm saying, these are the songs we're going to do. Uh, and the ones, Go Down was one that they'd never, ever played. Yeah. And certainly never played with Brian. And they were like, can you write the lyrics down? So I had to get Chloe, who was quite young and, and very, not, not naive, but quite young and sweet, and go, she's going, um, it says, go down, licking on my licking stick. Does that sound right? And I went, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, Brian had never sung Go Down. I think there might have been, was there another one? Uh, Down Payment Blues. Down Payment Blues, Riff Raff, uh, Go Down. I've got it written down here somewhere too. Gone Shooting. Gone Shooting, that's right, yeah. It was amazing because I think it's really interesting because a lot of my friends at that time, when we talked about our favourite album, we all loved Power Age. Yes. But it was a bit of a hidden classic. It wasn't Highway to Hell. It wasn't Back in Black. It wasn't... Let There Be Rock, it was kind of this hidden gem that, and I always thought real ACDC fans loved it. Yeah. And they picked, what, three tracks off it yeah. to play. Yeah. Which was amazing. Yeah, and I'm glad they did. It, like you said, it is a fan favorite and songs that they never pull out. And then all of a sudden, not only did you get ACDC live on TV, but also playing songs that they'd never played before live together. So... So that was from Malcolm. I thought it was a request from you guys. Oh, no, no. We just, and the only track we weren't allowed to use in the broadcast is Let There Be Rock, which I don't know if you've seen that maybe on the outtakes. No, no. Because uh, Phil, Phil thought he, na- he nudged it up. Phil didn't like it. And it was, pre- it was pre-internet days, so there was no way we could send him a tape of it and go, can you watch it and check? Yeah. Like now you just send a file and go, no, it's fine. So we weren't allowed to use that. That's so Phil because he's such a perfectionist. And I think he yeah. had done that on the Let There Be Rock film where he took out, I think, TNT. He said, I wasn't happy with my drumming on that. So TNT was not in the movie for years. Uh, so that sounds like Phil. And Phil was back for the first time in years. So that must have been a trip for you to see him. I mean, it was just the whole thing in hindsight was just, it's one of those things like when you're a kid and you're 11 and you get highway to hell you didn't want to be in the same room as them because they terrified you. And then 25 years later, <laughs> yeah. But it, it was just, it, the whole thing was quite surreal. I mean, there was a point, things that happened. That I remember standing when they were rehearsing, watching Malcolm play, and he uses Fender Heavy picks, guitar picks. Yes. Which are quite a strong bit of plastic. And he was literally ripping them in half. They would just tear in half. And if you get one and try and tear it in half, either with your fingers or by hitting a guitar string, <laughs> it is fucking impossible he's like a sawmill at one point malcolm wanted a cup of tea or to go to the bathroom or something so we took his guitar off and i said do you mind and he and i put it on and i and i played a bit of back in black with him wow which they didn't record which they didn't record and he was cool but, with you playing that he was right there with you well he went out he left the room oh so he didn't know you were 
playing his guitar. <laughs> it was, but what was really, really bizarre about the whole thing, or not bizarre, but interesting from the guitar player's point of view, is Malcolm's guitar was the most revolting. It was horrible. The, the strings were miles off the frets. It was so hard to play. How he played guitar to such precision on that instrument, I've never... Because, um, honestly, the action was so high and the strings were really heavy and it was, it was the most difficult guitar I've ever played, I think. That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. Do, were you going for to kind of recreate Live in the Atlantic Studios, which was kind of a infamous little recording for them? I mean, it was, there was elements of it, of course, because it was a tiny studio, but we didn't really have time. That studio was literally so small that the walls, when we, when we designed it for VH1, that we were looking at sets and how we build a set. And I was like, I remember saying to Mike and, and the other creative team at VH1, it, it needs to be like the old Grey Whistle test in the old days, which you probably do, where they just had silver walls because that was the studio walls. That was the soundproofing of the studio. Yeah. And we did, we effectively copied that to make the studio as big as possible. So the walls of the studio, the walls behind them are not a set. That's actually the walls of the studio. Oh, wow. And if, and if you notice on some of the shots across the studio with, if you're on camera, Malcolm is on camera left and Cliff's on camera right. Mm -hmm. If you notice when they're shooting across, there's a window. Yes. And that's the window into the control room. That's how tiny that studio was. I mean, it was only really built for, 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 for a new, as, a, as a news and weather studio. Greg and I were talking about how it was your friend Howard Johnson who initially connected us back in 2009 where we were in London. And I remember reading in Howard's book, which is called um, Get Your Jumbo Jet Out of My Airport, yes. which is a great little book in case you guys didn't know that. And he was talking about that, that, that Brian probably wouldn't know the words. And so he didn't have a teleprompter probably. And were they all handwritten or because I remember yeah, Brian yeah. was like, I don't know half of these songs, you know, no, all the ones that he didn't know, we hand wrote. I mean, the, the cameras in that studio did have an auto cue on. OK, with, so they have the auto cue that you see on telly with the with the mirror. So it's right in front of you. But I can't imagine that Brian would ever have used an auto cue. Yeah. I mean, now he probably would be more savvy because he's done a lot of that his TV series. But back then. I would have thought an autocue, trying to read off a camera would have been more off put. But then he always did. So he always spends his time looking down, doesn't he? He yeah. shuffles around looking at the floor. So we wrote it all, we wrote them all down and they must have been stuck on his monitors. The other thing too is that I thought that you guys got those four songs as a request and then they were having so much fun. They stuck around and played like a dozen songs for you guys. But it sounds like to me that uh, they had planned on playing a full set anyway. Is that true? I honestly can't remember. I know that they were going to come in and do... You could be right. Maybe they were only going to do four or five songs. And I don't, th I don't think we requested them. I don't remember. It's, oh, it's shocking, isn't it? You think, why did you not pay, it? Why did you not pay attention? But I don't, <laughs> I don't think we requested it. I think they said they were, they were going to come in, they were going to do something different. So they said, we'll do Go Down, Go On Shoot, and Down Payment Blues, Riff Raff. And then I think 
because they were enjoying it, they decided to play a few more. So what they played Back in Black, they played Let There Be Rock. They played, I can't, oh, so bad that I can't remember. Oh, they did uh, Shook Me All Night Long, Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution. Uh, they did Ball Breaker, actually, because that was what they were touring with. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think the idea was just to do a little, like, four or five song set, and then they quite enjoyed it. So, I mean, we were there for quite a long time, and, and people, I remember normally when we were in the studio at VH1, the amount of time you had was so restricted yep. that, that you were always going, right, we've got to go, we've got to go. And I, there was no, that night, Mike and I were just like, we'll stay all night. Yeah. Keep going. Whatever stay you as want, long as you, you want. want. We'll, we'll, pay, yeah. we'll pay the smoking fee. <laughs> and I do remember having a conversation with Angus and saying, will you do it in your jeans and your T-shirt? Oh, it's so, really? Because it's so special. Will you not wear the schoolboy outfit? Wow. And he was like, I just thought it would make it more, even more exclusive. And he was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll think of it. And he was kind of umming and ahhing. And then he said, yeah, maybe, maybe. And then I left him to it. And then when he came in the studio, he had the, he had the outfit on. And he went, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't do it without the outfit. And I was, you know, at that point you go, it's fine. You can do whatever you like. Yeah. <laughs> Why did I ask him? What am I thinking? Don't tell Angus Young what to wear. That's pretty ballsy of you. I kind of love it though. You know, I love that. But I think there's a part of him that is almost like a Clark Kent Superman kind of thing. Like without that yeah. changing of the uniform, he has a harder time getting into character, maybe. I think so, because I was watching I was watching something, a history of Headbangers Ball show on YouTube a few weeks ago. And there's there's a bit where Brian and him are interviewed on, on Headbangers Ball, probably in 88, 89. Yeah. And he's just wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Right. And he just looks a bit awkward. <laughs> and they are the thing is, but it's because I remember when we finished the session, Mike Kaufman did an interview with them, which there's a bit of that in the uncut. Yes. But the interview their interviews are so awkward, aren't they? They really are. They um they're not going deep on any questions you're gonna throw at them for sure. But I, I think uh, it's not it's not they're not it, it, it's it's really hard to interview them because Brian talks really quickly. And even I can't understand half of what he says. And Malcolm <laughs> talks. Uh, Malcolm and Angus used to talk really quickly, and they just, they just. Uh, and you're from the same country as Brian. You can't understand him. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just don't really know what they say. But let the music do the talking. Well, I was going to ask you about the the uniform. I had read in Howard's book that you had asked him at least not to wear the schoolboy cap. And he also said, no, I want to wear the cap. Do you remember that? Yeah. And then the cap, the cap was on the floor in the studio for a long time. Yeah, it lasted about and two I, seconds on his head. You know what? I remember heard? I remember it got picked up. And I remember thinking when it got picked up, that should end up in my bag. <laughs> a bit naughty. <laughs> but it didn't end up in my bag. And I don't know where it went. Oh, bummer. Somebody somebody somebody, somebody it took and it. And kind of there's a bit of me that goes, well, yeah, fair enough. But it wasn't me. I was going to say, there was a moment on the bootleg video of the rehearsals, that video that I was telling you about, it's like over an hour of rehearsal footage. You can see it on YouTube. And I purchased it back in the days before the web uh, for uh, quite a fee from London because I'm obsessed <laughs> with all things ACDC. And I was in awe because, and I still am to this day watching the rehearsals because there was a scene where Mal and Angus and Cliff are huddled around Phil's kit and they're locking in on how to play Riff Raff because it's been a while and it's absolutely thrilling. Can I play you a little clip from that right now? 
Yeah, it do. I, I wish I remember it better. All right. Like as gentle as ACDC gets. So much, Jim, for making that happen. <laughs> well, I, I'd love to take more credit, but as I say, Mike Kaufman was the. I mean, to be fair, the band—it's one of those weird things that you know, bands don't do stuff like that, or didn't back then, and yeah. ACDC particularly. But what I do seem to remember Malcolm saying, "We want, we did it because we wanted to." But also, I think he says it in the interview when you you asked us. Yes, he does. Seventies, I think, were the last real live thing we ever done on TV. I think that was for a Beeb thing. You know, I mean, there's been video stuff done of his life, but this, this is the first time we, we've done it since the 70s, isn't it? Uh, we just felt it was a good idea yeah. since you asked it, you know? Yeah. And um, we, had, we just thought it'd be nice for us, a bit of a change, really, you know, get us off the big stage and, you know, back in amongst the, the nuts and bolts of it again, you know? Yeah, yeah and you're, you're right in the, in the, the thick of it, you know? We just kept it loose, like we didn't think about it. Yeah. We thought you might have a few suggestions here, yeah. and we thought we'll just play requests, really. So, just... But nobody wants to hear anything, so we got to call our own tunes. After that, I spent a lot of time sending emails to their management, asking them to do stuff. Which they never did. <laughs> well, that's funny because management probably can't get anything out of them either. You know, it's like, I, I, yeah, I don't think management had anything to do with that session at all. I don't, they, I think they just did it off. I don't know. They just know, did it on their just, own, which is great. How yeah. was that episode received? Any feedback from even the band? I said the only feedback we had was that a fax from Malcolm going, please don't put that there, be rocking because Ruddy doesn't like it. Okay. And I think it said in brackets, we, the rest of us thought it was fine, but yeah. Um, I mean, I tell yeah, you, know, the weird thing is because it was pre internet. You kind of just, once it was done, you put it out and everyone went, it's great, it's ACDC. And, and you, it's only now you look back and you go, since then, how many TV shows have they done? None. None. And before, you know, so it's only in hindsight you realize quite what a big deal it was. And probably that's a good thing. Otherwise, you'd have got overexcited and made a fool of yourself. Well, there was a moment <laughs> where they did go on MTV for a couple of live songs during stiff upper lip and they were on saturday night live but it was like a one-off you know but yours was like a an entire program and it was it was proper because they properly played and there was it wasn't really promotional no. i mean it wasn't like there was no reason for them to do it other than they wanted to do it oh, that's a good way to say it yeah
the time you said that this was the best thing you'd ever done, and out of all the bands you've worked with, they're the one group that you love the most. But now that you've got a Grammy under your belt, would you still say that? <laughs> Do you know what? I think there's two things I've done, three things, that really, that, that just because of the music I love, that really are, I wouldn't say that, not necessarily the best things I've done, but the things I'm most excited about, which would be the ACDC, the Metallica Big Four, and I did a DVD for Richie Blackmore's Rainbow about five years ago. And I'll be honest with you, it's not Rich, you know, it's not Rainbow's finest moment. It's not Rich, Richie's finest moment. Mm -hmm. But it was the fact I got to direct a concert with Richie Blackmore. And weirdly, I met him and he was very uninterested in meeting me. <laughs> he was nice, <laughs> but he, so those three, because and again, because ACDC, because they were one of the first bands I ever loved, Metallica, because I was obsessed with them when I was 21, 22. And that was the big four, and it was you know that thrash metal thing was was a big deal for me. Yeah, sure, um, sure. And then you know Richie Blackmore's Rainbow because yeah because Blackmore the first riffs of um, Woman from Tokyo are what changed changed my whole mindset about music and the world, which is weird because it's not that different to Slade or The Sweet, but somehow it felt like I'd never heard anything like it. Well, I was going to ask you in in uh, later on. In 2008, you founded Sporadic Productions and went on to direct ACDC again for an episode of Video Killed the Radio Star, which was a show where Angus and Brian sat with their longtime director, David Mallett, who essentially made the boys every video you could think of, uh, from Who Made Who to Shook Me All Night Long to Thunderstruck and every concert film imaginable. How did that come about? That one weirdly was, and that's a strange, strange thing. Directing, because I directed a series, there was six of them, and directing directors is quite weird, especially when it's David Malick. Right. Like, he's, he's kind of a big deal. Oh, yeah. Um, but what was strange about that one is I didn't do the ACDC shoot. Oh. I was series directing it, so I was in the edit. But for some reason, and I can't remember why, I, the ACDC got filmed in Paris, Okay. And I couldn't do it. So Paul King, who was a, a presenter on VH1 in the UK, I don't know if you know him. He did. He in, in MTV he was he used to do 120 minutes in for MTV. Okay. Uh, and then he was a producer and a presenter on VH1 in, in the UK. He, okay. he, he was in a band called King, Love and Pride. Great okay. Song. Um, so he went and did it for me. And the funny thing there was, uh, David Mallett. When, when we were doing the interviews, David always wanted to sit in the middle. And all the other interviews, if you notice, I wouldn't let him. I, he sat left or right, and it's and you did a cross shoot, which is I'm sure Gregor knows what I mean. It's it's what kind of how you shoot interviews. One camera, you know, the cameras shoot across each other. Yeah, that's the way. But David, for some reason, wanted to do. And I remember the first time we did an interview with Bob Geldof, and David Mann said to me, uh, "Are you going to put the cameras left and right, dear boy?" And I was like, uh, "Yeah, yeah. Uh, how how would you want to do it, David?" And I'm thinking, "Do I tell him? Do I just tell him? I'm directing this." Pipe down. No. <laughs> and he said, well, I, I'd have, he said, I'd have the two cameras next to each other, dead straight, and I'd sit in the middle. And then the one camera does a wide shot and the other camera swings across and picks up singles. And I remember I just went, I think we'll stick with what we've got. Anyway, wow. So when it, when it comes to the ACDC one, I said to Paul, he'll want to shoot it and he'll want to sit in the middle, but don't let him because it's really, it's really hard to cut. Which right. if you watch that episode, there's a wide shot, but because 
he talks most. And because Malcolm and uh, Angus and Brian chat and laugh, there's one camera sat on a three shot and the other camera is just roaming. Constantly, it goes to Brian. And by the time it gets to Brian, he's Angus is talking. So it goes back to Angus by the time he's got to it. <laughs> and it never, it just, it, this camera is just moving left and right the whole time. We actually uh, reached out to David. He was slated to be a guest on the show. He, uh, we had the script ready. He had, he'd said, yes, let's do it. Uh, we had fan questions. Greg had said, well, let's, let's ask the fans if they want questions. And so they wrote in, uh, and then he got busy. So, Oh, what a shame. Yeah. Chase him again. He's a, he's a, he's a, such a lovely man and he's such a talented man. From your early days at MTV to producing everything from Coldplay to Def Leppard to the Download Fest, creating content for BBC and Sky, NBC, ABC, HBO, Apple. Your experience now is immense. Why is it important for you to capture these musical moments in time? Uh, well, I think, to be honest, it's because it's music. Uh, that, I mean, music was what I wanted to do. And, and bizarrely, I got the job at MTV kind of by accident. So it was the M, not the TV, that I was really interested in. And it was the headbangers ball. It was the metal and the, the metal and the music that was what I really wanted to do. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't really, I mean, it sounds so awful for someone that's had such a fortunate and lucky career. But I'm, it, it, the music's what I care about much more than the films. I mean, I love making the films, don't get me wrong. But it was the music I was interested in. And that's why I ended up doing live concerts, because that's, it's, it's more like doing a live album. Yeah, just got some cameras there. So I guess yeah, um, I just yeah, I just I mean gigs. When I was a kid, going to gigs was the greatest thing. Yeah, the first proper show I saw was Wishbone Ash in nineteen eighty, and and I remember that thinking that was really rocking. And then you look back and go, wasn't that rocking? They were quite <laughs> gentle. I mean, they loved it. I loved that. Out, you know that time. Yeah, and I saw Iron Maiden about three months afterwards on the Killers tour. Wow, and that was that was a incredible. little more rocking. Yeah, yeah. And then after that, I went to see, you know, I, just going to gigs was the greatest thing. Well, as you know, uh, Greg and I have been trying to make a documentary for years on ACDC. Uh, and mm. they're not the easiest one to tackle. I don't know what we were thinking, but, you know, it was a, pa <laughs> it was a passion project. But we have to thank you personally for uh, showing interest and helping us along the way and being a great cheerleader for us. So thank you very much. Well, I wish it got. I wish it would get released. I mean, it's it's the film's still there, isn't it? It's just you just need someone in ACDC's camp to go to get their blessing, or you know, or Netflix or someone to go. We can make this happen because the hard work's done. I mean, that the crazy thing about it is most of the time it's getting the money to make the film. Yeah, you've kind of made it, and now you need someone's approval to to use their music. I mean, it's it's a it's an interesting thing because. I don't know if you've seen there's a Randy Rhodes documentary. I have seen it. Yeah. Which is, I really enjoyed. I did it too. Hasn't got any, it hasn't got any of his music in it. No. Because obviously Ozzy went, no. Yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, think how can you make a film about a musician without yeah. his music? But they did. I mean, I enjoyed it because I love those films. I love watching, I, you know, I read all the books about music, which are all the same, aren't they? I was from nowhere. I got really famous. I got <laughs> mashed on drugs. I'm okay now. <laughs> I do the same I thing. Mean, it's the same story. And I actually just yeah. watched the Sinead O'Connor documentary and she didn't get the rights for Nothing Compares to You from the Prince family estate. And oh. I'm like, wow, that was like her thing. Uh, it's such a shame because he loved that version of it. Yeah. He right. said, always said that, you know, I, that song became untouchable by her. 
Right. It's, I don't know if you heard it, it's the, the Rob Halford book. Yes. Which I really enjoyed reading. I did too. But have you listened to Rob read it? No. Listen to the the audio book where Rob, it's it's like 100% better. Maybe <laughs> Rob Halford tell you. Because you know all the stories about when he's young and he's confused and he's trying not to be gay, but he knows he is. And, it, you know, must the repressive society. It's It's amusing in the book. But when he tells it, it's heartbreakingly amusing. It's like laugh out loud and cry at the same time. And it's because it's just, it's like, that's great. It's, you know, it's Rob Halford, but he's the metal god, but he also, he talks in a Birmingham accent. <laughs> so it's, 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 and I think audiobooks, those kind of documentary audiobooks are really interesting. Because again, if you, you know, I haven't heard the Dave Mustang one, but I imagine listening to him yeah. tell his own story is probably, yeah, there's a lot of much more, attitude yeah. and inflection missed in the book, but. We were going to ask you, um, aside from Brian at the Taylor Hawkins tribute concert, have you worked with ACDC ever since? Um, I've done a few. I've done a few interviews with them for a download and those kind of things, but right, very very briefly. So I've done a few interviews with Angus and a few interviews with Brian. I, did I ever? Did I ever do anything with Malcolm? I don't think I did. Yeah. So not really. It was kind of a, it was a bit of a one-off. But then when you look at their history, you go, well, they didn't do a lot. So it's not like I missed out on tons. I mean, I always wanted to shoot a concert film of theirs, and I chased their management relentlessly for years. I'd send them proposals every time they'd do it, and I'd say, I'll direct it. You can get anyone to direct it. I'll sweep the floors. I'll do whatever it takes. We can shoot it for a hundred pounds, or we can shoot it for a million pounds. I don't care. And <laughs> I never got any response. And they just went back to David Mallet, which you know you have to. I even wrote to David yeah. and went, "Can I produce you?" <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, no response. No. And then when <laughs> yeah. I worked with David after that, I was far too polite to ever go back and go, David, can I produce something? It's like a ridiculous man that I should have done. But so I never really did work with him apart from that one time. But I guess it's kind of it's still quite cool, wasn't it? Let's be honest. Oh yeah. Oh, it's one of the <laughs> oh, yeah. greatest one of the greatest things ever captured of ACDC. I was gonna ask you, uh, what's the best example of capturing ACDC outside of what you captured at VH1? There's not a huge amount, are there? I mean there's I think the River Plate one's great. Yeah. Because the audience are insane. Absolutely insane. I mean, they sing the riffs. They don't sing the words, they're singing the actual riffs. But also, they jump up and down yes. the whole time. Yes. I mean, they are, it's relentless. And I think, because I always think whenever you're filming a concert, the band is one thing, but if you've got a good audience, it's a much better film. Yeah. And the audience make that film as much as the band do. I love the Donington 84. That's, that's, the one I'd like to have filmed. Yeah, that was a great bill. It was a brilliant bill. Yeah. And I think it was the first time I'd ever seen them because they didn't play a lot of shows in the UK. Once once they got really big, they stopped playing. They were one of the first bands to play Wembley Arena and the Birmingham NEC, which yeah. for little old me living in the Somerset in the southwest, they didn't play near me. So getting to the big cities then was really hard. They were under world domination by then. They were, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was just a little bit too young for the Back in Black tour. Well, I was at boarding school, so I couldn't go for whatever reason. Well, here's a deep question for you, Jim. How has ACDC affected your life and your career? Oh, that's a difficult question. I mean, I don't know about my career. I don't... But in terms of how they've affected my life, I just... They're just it's a bit... They're a bit like... It sounds ridiculous, but it's a bit like your nan, isn't it? Or your granddad. They're just a solid... Always been there. Always... Oh, I mean, you know, if they tour, you go and see them because they're always brilliant. 
they're not one of those bands that have their moments. I mean, I, I think on albums, they, you know, they make the same album every time is what everyone says, but, and every album's got a few great songs on it. I was going to ask you one final question or a couple of uh, rounding the corner here. How has ACDC affected the world? What is their magic potion that they've sprinkled on all of us? I, I just think it's, it's that cliche about music, isn't it? That music unites everybody. You know, but you, you know, music is is the greatest uh, uniter there is, and I think it's that thing. You look at the River Plate show; they they, they just loved people, just love them, and they're always brilliant. And it's really it's really primal stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's not complicated. It's the basically it's a four four beat. Yeah, it's a rock and roll shuffle, or it's a bit of a blues. I mean, you know, there's kind of four different tempos that ACDC do. Yeah, and they're just. It's just fun as well. There's no, I mean, there's there's a lot of a lot of bands that try and be clever, and a lot of bands that are clever. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of musicians that are supremely clever and technical and gifted, but ACDC are just great, aren't they? They're just fantastic at what they do, and just it's just reliable, isn't it? It's like your favorite leather jacket or your favorite pair of sneakers or your favorite. You know what I mean? They just put them on and everything you know you put your favorite leather jacket on you walk down the street and you're like yeah everything. and if you listen to acdc as well everything feels better doesn't it you know everything does feel better for sure well jim i uh, we could talk all day with you man uh we could thank you so much for taking the time <laughs> to spend with us uh and our rabid acdc listeners around the globe but before we let you go we leave you with one last question and since you're a director uh we'll speak in your set language and say action uh, when we're ready to cue you. Are you ready? Yeah. If you had to sum up ACDC in just one word, what would it be? And action. Solid. I mean, they are, you know, they are the, they're kind of the perfect blue-collar band, aren't they? ACDC Beyond the Thunder theme song, Trailer Trash, written and performed by Gannon Arnold. VO Talent by Bruce Jacobson. Cinematography and sound recording by Greg Ferguson. Edited and mixed by Eric Keel. Written, directed, and hosted by Kurt Squires. Produced by Greg Ferguson, Eric Keel, and Kurt Squires. ACDC Beyond the Thunder is a Squires LLC current motion production. Copyright Beyond the Thunder podcast. All rights reserved. This has been a Nat Attack presentation. Jazz button, nanu, nanu.